You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Declan Neal Fernandez, a film enthusiast and author. In this episode, we find out about Declan's avid long-term interest in film, especially physical media, that is VHS tapes, DVDs, laser discs, and Blu-rays. In our conversation, we explore Declan's 10-year writing journey, which resulted in the published book, Horrible and Fascinating, John Borman's Exorcist II, The Heretic. The book seeks to answer many of the questions associated with the unique, compelling and infamous film, Exorcist II, The Heretic. Released in 1977, the film was a much-anticipated sequel to the most popular and successful horror film ever made, The Exorcist. The sequel was inspired by profound philosophical concepts popular in 1970s culture related to New Age consciousness, spirituality and human evolution. Unfortunately, all of this was lost in the confusion. The film is often described as one of the worst ever made. On a fact-finding mission, Declan asked the question, how did it happen? Declan offers insights into his writing process as we chat about the background, context and dynamics of the film with discussions around the Hollywood film industry in the 1970s, Warner Brothers Studio, director John Borman and other aspects of the ill-fated production. Declan shares some of the reasons why he decided to venture into this unexpected and curious cultural territory on an intriguing personal mission to solve a mystery. Here's my conversation with Declan Neil Fernandez. Very nice to see you, Declan. Nice to see you, Mark. What's uh, what's Sydney like at the moment? Uh, it's a little bit overcast today. Uh, okay. Yeah, I've I've never actually been to Sydney before. Um, you know, lived in Australia for uh, I think. 37 years. I've, I'm not very well travelled around the country, I'm afraid. I've never been to Sydney, but um, I hear it's nice. Oh, yes. Some people think Sydney is the centre of the universe. But, um, <laughs> and you're from Perth? I am, yes. You're the man who felt Perth. I Yes, I know. That's, uh, I remember um, back when, when, when David Bowie t- uh, toured here back in 2004, I, I was anticipating that all the headlines were going to say the man who fell to Perth, and you know what? It never happened, and so you know, I I just I thought, well, I'll just I'll just uh, I'll just use that. Um, yeah, I actually wanted to uh, to to change it, but uh, I think after after Tony Martin uh, referenced my my book and my my social media in his Sizzletown podcast, I feel like I can't. I'm stuck with it. I can't change it. So yeah. <laughs> wow. So I can see with your background, you have your physical or, you know, uh, your Zoom background. You've got heaps of what appear to be DVDs, VHS, Blu-ray. So you really clearly a film lover. I I am, yes, yes. Um, You can't see any. I do have a, a... an extensive laser disc collection as well, which is extremely frivolous because I don't actually have a working laser disc player. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's a very it's it's a passionate but inconvenient hobby. The the accumulation of 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 physical media films and yeah. So I'm interested if you take us back a ways um, mm-hmm. 
and we can go back as far back as you know you you kind of want. But uh, where did this interest come from? Like, what were you doing at an earlier age in terms okay. of? popular culture maybe right right well um, i'm sort of uh you know I'm, I'm a child of the 80s so i i grew up in that uh you know that era of you know classic 80s blockbuster films you know that uh, you know the star wars indiana jones uh ghostbusters um back to the future all those films that you know i was like many people of my generation i was well into and i think it's a sort of case where um you know like when you're a kid you know, and you know, everyone's into movies. It's not it's not a big deal. You talk about movies with with you know with your peers and with friends and with family and everything. Um and so I didn't really think that I was especially passionate about film until I got to the point where um I re- I was doing things like uh, I was pausing like credits and I was jotting down directors and, and actors and uh, what they did and I was like writing reviews and exercise books as um and things like that. And so I sort of realized that I was kind of that was the point where um, I think it was um, something that uh, Alan Moore, the um, comic book writer, said. I think I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing. He said that when he was 10 years old, he read Superman comics to see what Superman was doing. And then when he was 11, he was reading Superman comics to see what the writers were doing. Um, that where you get to a certain point where you're kind of peeking behind uh, the curtains and, and you're sort of interested in the mechanics of what's going on behind the movies. Um, and that was, you know, from a very young age, uh, that's that's where my mind started to started to go um and then I, I touched upon it um in the sort of the autobiographical prologue of my book um the, the formative experience of um my parents uh running a restaurant that was situated uh, literally next door to a to a small video store a vhs rental store that um i was allowed to sort of loiter in uh, and just sort of being around um all those video video cassettes and being sort of mesmerized by the just the the artwork of, of all these movies and and just sort of that's that was a very a very uh, influential experience on me which is never really um i mean beyond the films itself also the my my fascination with the aesthetics of, of vhs uh which uh yeah which is uh continues to this day yep uh so just for the younger audience members what's a video store and what's vhs <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, right. Well, it's for young people that are sort of um, take for granted that you can just uh, stream pretty much any movie you want instantly. This is back in the old days when uh, if you wanted to see a, a movie, you had to go to a you had to go to a store and you got to browse um, little plastic boxes filled with magnetic tape and you could rent them and you could watch the movie and then seven days later you had to return them um that was uh, that was how we i mean it, there was that and there was also whatever movies were, were screening on television uh, and whatever was playing in the cinema but that was that was basically that was basically it um so yeah it was a uh, uh, a technological format that sort of arose in the late 70s and it, it endured for pretty much until the the end of the 90s and then uh, it was superseded by dvd and then blu-ray um but yeah it's that's uh, that's that's VHS in a in a in a very potted nutshell. So at the time, what was your kind of like? Did you rent like multiple movies each week, or only the new releases, or how did what sort of habits <laughs> viewing habits did you have? Uh, okay, right, right. Well, I mean, originally um, with my um, it was more of a family thing. So like the whole family would would rent a selection of movies, and I would get to pick like you know one or two. Um, and then it wasn't really until later on um, 
sort of my, when I was in high school and then in university, when I was sort of had the capability to sort of just go and just rent mass quantities of, 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 of videos by myself that I was choosing. And that was sort of like when I was a teenager, that was when I was getting into my, my budding uh, film geek phase. Um, and also it was just, you know, I, in in retrospect, maybe maybe I should have you know engaged more with society and had more of a normal um, you know functional social life. But I yeah, unfortunately, I spent a great deal of my my uh, my nascent years just in my bedroom, you know, just watching uh, watching lots of movies, predominantly horror films, uh, which again I, I touch upon in the in the um, in in the book, my, my fascination with the horror genre, um, yeah, years ago. Yeah, so what um, I was going to ask you about what sort of genres that you were interested in, and so horror was definitely. I mean, it was a good era for horror, really. The eighties. It was. That, it, mm-hmm. Well, oh, just with that kind of um, the whole need for, like, <laughs> uh, if it was a need, I guess the kind of backlog of all this sort of nineteen seventies and early eighties kind of content, but then the ideal format. They were all available. You could just watch them. Yeah, and so they kind of like it was a. It was a, certainly a lot happening around that time. There was one particular or, you know, a particular um, film that caught your interest among lots of others. Can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit more about that kind of either that genre or that kind of this the, the series, very famous series? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, well, that famous series uh, being The Exorcist, um, a film franchise which is uh, 50, 50 years old uh, this, this year. Um, so the long and the short of it is, um, when I was a kid, uh, I was fascinated by the horror movie shelves that was sort of, um, because it was that sense that it was, you know, forbidden fruit, so to speak, you know, I, w- I was well underage. I wasn't able to see, um, any of these, um, gory films until I was a little bit older. Um, so yeah, I, I remember being fascinated by all these, the, the artwork, the sleeves, the sort of lurid, gory, um, uh, you know, looking um, movies, um, and I sort of, I, I sort of had this, you know, ambition that when I was of age, I would, I would catch up on on these movies, and and I did. You know, some of them were good, some of them were were not so good, um, but you know, I think with horror films, when you're a kid, um, as long as a film, it might not be especially good overall, but if 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 it's got at least a couple of good, you know, set pieces, a couple of good, you know, gore scenes, that's usually enough to justify the whole movie. But um, yeah, so when I was a, a teenager, I was getting into all the. Um, horror franchises, um, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Friday the Thirteenth, Halloween, Child's Play, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, all the Evil Dead, all those ones, um, and then there was The Exorcist, um, which I sort of I I was sort of prepped for that one because I'd seen The Omen, uh, which was kind of which was a film that was released uh, a few years after The Exorcist. It was kind of in the wake of The Exorcist, but so I sort of knew I liked The Omen, and I thought, okay, well, if I like The Omen, then I'm going to have to watch The Exorcist as well, um, and I think. Um, I sort of, I was into the Exorcist before I actually saw the movie. I just sort of, I had like Exorcist related books and things that I that I read, um, which sort of got me got me prepared for it. And I think the first time I saw the Exorcist, it was on VHS. I think it was nineteen ninety seven or nineteen ninety eight. Uh, the film was from nineteen seventy three, so the film already had you know a, a legacy and a reputation uh, behind it. Um, and I saw I saw the Exorcist, and I thought it was one of the most brilliant films uh, I, I'd ever seen. I, st- I still think so. Uh, and because when you're a kid. 
uh, and you're getting into horror franchises, you kind of, it's like that sort of collectible nature. Like you have, you feel like you have to see every single film that exists uh, within that, within that franchise. And so I saw the exorcist and at the time there were, there were two other exorcist films, um, exorcist Two, the heretic and exorcist three. Uh, and so I had to, I had to see those as well. And um, yeah, that's, that's uh, exorcist Two: the heretic. That's kind of where, uh, where, where, where we're sort of heading towards with, with, uh, with uh, what, what happened. Yeah, so we, we're going to find out a little bit more about the the book that you've written, but mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, like in terms of the viewing experience, like did it did it, what did it speak to you about, or you know, did it bounce out at you, or was it a a slow burn, or you know, what was the kind of um, and- well, yeah, it was it was um. It was both because I mean it was a slow burn because the Exorcist, um, what William Friedkin made, it's got that very sort of um, sober documentarian style to it. It's very grounded, um, which is what makes the shock moments that much more effective. It's just like um, I think Roger Ebert when he did it, he did a review of the Exorcist um, years later in, in two thousand when he said that the Exorcist is a frightening movie because it seems it doesn't want to be frightening. It's like the horror. Um, it's it, it it sort of imposes itself on like events that um on everyday events um you know that uh, that sort of that sort of thing so um yeah and I I mean I've seen I've seen the Exorcist so many times and yet there are still some sequences in it that I just really can't look at um it's still I still think it's very it's it's still very effective um I didn't see the film uh, on the big screen until um uh when they re- when Friedkin released the um the extended or the alternate version in uh, 2000, 2001. Uh, so that was the, that was when I, I, prior to that, I'd only ever seen it on the uh, via VHS. I still prefer the theatrical cut of the Exorcist. I'd love to see the theatrical cut on the, on the big screen, but yeah. Mm. And, and so um, as you worked through but, the, um, the, yeah, the sequels, was, yeah. Like what? What? What was there? Because I know the kind of you know having <laughs> having read in full disclosure, having read your book, but also being a fan of of that those films <laughs> as well. That kind of documentary style realism of the first film is quite a different approach to it, its sequel. And I mean, it was a really anticipated mm. sequel. Um, and um, so yeah, tell us about. Your your kind of experiences with the 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 famous sequel Exorcist Two, <laughs> the Heretic. Exorcist Two, the Heretic. Heretic. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I didn't go into Exorcist Two, the Heretic. Um, you know, I, I sort of knew what to expect because um, I remember there was a there was a book, a horror movie book in my high school high school library, and there was it had um. There was a photograph of Exorcist to the Heretic. It was a it was a picture of Father Marin in in Africa, and the caption below it was it was very brief, but it was something like um, Exorcist to the Heretic is regarded as one of the worst movies of all time, or one of the worst horror movies of all time. So I was like, oh, okay, so this movie this movie isn't really especially well liked. So I went into the movie knowing it didn't have the best reputation, um, and I got it on VHS. I rented the VHS copy, and um, yeah, it's like. It was a weird thing where I didn't, I could see all the things wrong with the movie, and I would be hard pressed to say I actually liked it. But there was something that there was something that stuck stuck with me. Um, I sort of had 
Exist. I, I copied Exist and Exist to the Heretic onto one uh, one cassette. I, you know, I think the statute of limitations on VHS piracy is is long gone. So I think I'm okay to admit that. So I had I had Exist and Exist Two on the same video cassette. So I would routinely watch both movies, um, like you know, one after the other. And it's just like, um, although stylistically. Um, the, the second film is very different to the first one. I think the, the superficial things like the fact that it had like some of the same actors, it had like the same font. Uh, weirdly enough, that was that sort of, you know, made it <laughs> that made it sort of seem more legitimate to me than, than you know, it might have done to a lot of other people that saw that movie. But um, yeah, it was a, it was a film that, uh, that stuck with me. And I, I think, um, yeah, being however old I was at the time, um, uh, I, I think I must have been like maybe 15 or 16 or something. It was like, you know, I, I kind of, um, I did, um, you know, I, I think my, my, my film literacy or film vocabulary probably wasn't, you know, as highly formed then as, as it would be now. So I was sort of prepared to take a lot of things uh, about the film uh, on face value. Um, if that, I'm not sure if that, that makes sense. But uh, yeah, so um, that was that was it for me. Um, Exodus to the Heretic. It sort of it stuck with me. I watched it many times, even though um, I, I didn't think it was anywhere near as good as the first film. But you know, I, I thought it was. Uh, I still I still watched it repeatedly. So as I hold this 270 page book in my hand, at some point in the story, you made a decision. I think it might be a good idea to. Well, I'm assuming I'm, you know, I don't want to tell your story, but I'm, I'm just wondering what, when did you make the decision to pursue a kind of, you know, uh, th this project, this writing project? This project, yeah, my 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 magnum opus or uh, my my magnificent octopus, as as Baldrick from Blackadder would say. Um, yeah, okay, so the the idea sort of floated around. I think uh, probably a dozen, maybe twelve years ago. Um, I think there was there was a friend of mine, uh, Manfred. We we were sort of we were fascinated by Exodus too, and we we're always talking about the the movie. And I think um, the reason I wrote the book was because um, I was really interested. Like, why is this film it so off the rails? Like, what what caused this to happen? And I mean, I'd read some material, uh, just some brief background stuff. Like, there were books about the Exorcist that would sort of mention Exorcist two in it. Um, but there really wasn't a lot of material. There wasn't really any. Um, books out there that sort of really answered my question. I mean, there was the uh, the 1977 paperback book, The Making of Exodus to the Heretic, uh, which was released as a promotional item, but the the account of the film ends um, with uh, before the film goes into post-production, so it doesn't really go into the, the finalization of the film or the release of it or anything, and it was like a promotional item, so it doesn't really go into the, <laughs> I guess, the the stories about what was going on behind the scenes, you know, the, the sort of um, the the... The, the terrible the terrible events that were going on um but so it was really just a case of like filling a hole it was like i really want to know what happened with this um with, with this movie there's no book out there you know maybe i will take a crack at writing it myself you know put my what my uh you know my academic skills as it were to to some sort of use and it was really just um uh, I mean, I didn't really have any serious thoughts of it getting published at first. It was really just a hobby I had on the side, just a, a writing project I had on the side that I worked over for literally ten years. I was working, I was working on it, and it wasn't until um, a couple of years ago that I sort of had the idea that you know this is actually this is m might be something that people would want to read. This could act this is actually perhaps publishable, um, and so I floated uh, my manuscript around several publishers and uh, and Bear Manor Media, um, a publisher. Uh, in in the United States, um, was you know kind enough to say, yep, this we're you know 
this looks like something we'd like to put out. Uh, and they offered me a contract and that was, uh, yeah. So it was, um, I finished it. Uh, I think it was 2021 and then, um, it was published in June, uh, 2022. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. I'm looking at my copy of Horrible and Fascinating, John Borman's Exorcist II, The Heretic. Did you have a, a central aim or thesis in mind when you set out to write this book? Uh, I did. Yeah. Okay. Um, because what was driving me was really the idea of why is this movie this way? Is there any, is there any one main reason why Exodus to the Heretic uh, went so completely off the rails and baffled and outraged audiences in, in 1977? Um, and I think, yeah, my, my idea was, well, I think it really boiled down to um, the decision of Warner Brothers, the the studio to entrust the movie to, to John Borman Um and I think I was just proceeding from the idea that um, it, that really that the fate, the dubious fate of Exodus to the Heretic was set in stone when Warner Brothers uh, decided to let John Borman make the film. Um, it was a, I, I feel a, a catastrophic uh, decision. And I think most of the problems that that eventuated uh, that um, uh, kind of um, hamstrung the production and and resulted in a in a deeply flawed uh, film. I think it all just comes down to the decision to to hire. Uh, John Borman. So I was just working. I was just working off that, and that's really, I mean, or- organically, that's that's the um, the answer that came up um, in in the course of my the course of my research. Um, I was a little afraid that uh, you know that the the book might be taken as being a, a condemnation of John Borman, uh, which I which is really not my intent. I am actually a huge John Borman fan. I love most of his movies. Um, there's just a couple where he just um, I think his, his uh, his ideas were just not right for, and uh, his his approach was was not was not um didn't quite work. So yeah, I for, hope... for those unfamiliar with John Borman, what what has he directed over the years? Okay, uh, right. Well, so John Borman, uh, he's a um, British filmmaker. He's from he's from London. He sort of uh, in the nineteen sixties uh, he he started off um, doing uh, documentary work for the BBC, and he got into filmmaking, and he made um he made a really good um, crime drama, uh, Point Blank. Uh, in 1967, with with Lee Marvin, that's a, it's a really good, um, tough sort of uh, urban crime film. And then he did Hell in the Pacific, which is a World War II movie uh, with Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mifune, about an um, American soldier and a Japanese soldier stuck on an island and sort of having to cooperate to survive. Um, and he did uh, Leo the Last, uh, which is a pretty good sort of film set in London in 1970. And Borman, he wanted to do, um, he wanted to make a movie about King Arthur, uh, and then um, he. United Artists Studios sort of counter offered with, you know, making a movie about Lord of the Rings. There was supposed to be a Lord of the Rings movie made back in the seventies and John, John Borman was supposed to direct it. That fell through. And then Borman made what is probably his best film or certainly my favorite John Borman film, which is uh, deliverance, uh, a rather infamous um, sort of uh, outdoor survival uh, film involving um, four city guys on a canoeing trip that turns into the canoe trip from hell when they run into some psychopathic hillbillies. Uh, that was a big, that was a really good film. And then Borman did um, Zardoz, uh, a sort of a bizarre 
post-apocalyptic science fiction movie with Sean Connery, which is a really bonkers movie. And that, and it was after that, that was 74. And then he did, he made Exodus to the Heretic in, in 1977. Um, but after that, Borman, he, he made some really good films like um, Excalibur, which is the King Arthur movie he'd been wanting to make for a while. Uh, the Emerald Forest, um, which was, which was really good. Um, and he's made some, he's, he's made some, he's made some really good, really good films and a couple of weird ones, but uh, yeah. But um, I think the thing with uh, John Borman, um, again, I, I come back to, you know, not wanting to criticize him too much. Um, I think it was, um, I'm paraphrasing here, the, the film critic Pauline Kael uh, describing um, Brian De Palma's Bonfire of the Vanities. She said, it's the kind of bad movie that only a great filmmaker could have made. And I feel that's kind of applicable to Exodus to the Heretic. It's like if Warner Brothers had got some journeyman hack to make a, a, an, an Exodus sequel, it wouldn't be anywhere near as bonkers as this. This Exodus to the Heretic is the is the product of a great filmmaker, an intelligent, ambitious filmmaker who has all the wrong ideas, but has complete conviction um, and, and complete self-belief in those ideas and that's why the movie is is so is so bizarre and fascinating i mean it's it feels strange to say that you know i spent 10 years writing a book about a film that i don't actually love i mean it's a labor of love for a movie that i don't really love but it's kind of like i mean it's in the title horrible and fascinating which is a line of dialogue in the movie but i felt it was quite uh, it was quite appropriate because um i, I am fascinated by this film i've been fascinated with um, for a long time, the same way maybe you know you might be fascinated by you know a true crime or something, something like something like that. So that so that was um, that my my process of writing was like okay, what's the what's the evidence? Where are the exhibits? You know what's the um you know if this if this movie was a cinematic crime, uh, you know who who are the perpetrators and what were the circumstances? Um, that was kind of kind of where I was going with it in a in a in a strange way. So, so how did you? What was your process like? You, did you have a, a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a piece, of, you know, a notebook and pen, or a um, laptop, or did you go to the library, or? Um, yeah, uh, all of those things. Uh, apart from maybe the library, um, I, I sort of, yeah. It, uh, first of all, it was just it was just handwritten stuff. There was actually um, my friend uh, I mentioned before, Manfred, and I. Um, we used to run a. Um, a sort of a, a film, like a, a forum. Uh, it's long defunct. It doesn't exist anymore. But we used to just sort of carry on dialogue between ourselves about films. And and the the impetus of Exodus to it actually began as a series of posts that I made. Um, and then it was um, it, the the book sort of evolved from from that. But yeah, what I had, I mean, yeah, I was taking handheld notes. I had books. I mean, John Borman wrote. Um, his biography, uh, Memoirs of a Suburban Boy. Uh, there was books about John Borman, uh, including. Um, the book, uh, it was just called John Borman uh, by the French uh, writer um, uh, Michel Simon. Um, and there was books about e The Exorcist uh, that sort of have chapters on Exorcist to the Heretic. I worked from that. Uh, Barbara Pallenberg's book, The Making of Exorcist to the Heretic. Uh, I worked from I worked from that as well. And just um, online, there's, there's, just like, there's like a wealth of material uh, online, um, especially um, you, you might have noticed that I quoted quite liberally from the uh, voluminous uh reviews of exes to the heretic the you know the the um the the largely hostile reviews that greeted the film upon its uh upon its release um uh, there are all those reviews they're all you, if you know how to look they're all they're all online um unfortunately the one um the gap i suppose that i didn't have i didn't have a copy of the film's original script by uh william goodhart uh, to work off of um for anyone that's not aware the film 
the screenplay is officially credited to a writer called William Goodhart, but uh, the film was extensively rewritten in the course of production by John Borman and his um, his minion, Rospo Pallenberg. Um, but I would have loved to have seen, um, I would have loved to have, have had a look at the original, the original screenplay, uh, but um, yeah, didn't so happen. I'm, I'm just visualising these 10 years of, you know, as, <laughs> as, as spring, you know, folds into summer and, you know, we're like, what, at what point, um, did you have like a big pile of notes and then start to draw them together into something, into a shape? Um, yes, it was. It was something like that. It was just a lot of a lot of um, pages of just scribbly hand handwritten notes that I was just you know taking off books and things. And then at some point, it just became a word document, uh, a very disjointed word document, um, and that just. Um, yeah, it it just evolved. I mean, a, a very very prosaic way. It was just a, a it was just an MS Word document that just got uh, that just got bigger and bigger. I mean, I think at, at first that the title of the book was going to be something like uh, Thirty Years of Exodus to the Heretic," which would have been, I guess, um, two thousand. No, it was going to be was it forty years or so of Exodus to there? I don't know what it was, but I realized that you know I'm not going to refer to any anniversaries in this because God knows when this thing is actually going to get finished. So I'll just settle for something that doesn't tie it to a to a to a particular anniversary. I think it might have been thirty five years of Exodus to the Heretic, like twenty eleven or something. I don't, I'm not sure of the maths, but uh, yeah. And it just it just got it just got bigger and bigger. And the thing is, it was um there, there was just so much like while I was writing it, there was so much um stuff happening like i was having to constantly update it like you know people involved with um the with the exorcist with exorcist 2 or with the exorcist world were kind of like dying and i was having to constantly update it like i think william peter blatty who wrote and produced the original exorcist um he died at, at some point max von Sydow um uh died ned Beatty died it was like um you're I had sounding section- like ellen burston in the documentary yes yeah, a documentary she, yes she rattles yes. them off all the deaths. yeah yeah i was I, and then i think i believe louise fletcher who was in exodus to the heretic she died um i think like a month or two months after the book was released i was like so it instantly rendered my book uh, out of date but uh, i won't I won't. I won't hold it. Hold that against her. But um, and then and then of course uh, William Friedkin himself, the director of The Exorcist, uh, died uh, only last month. And I, I was looking forward to him because you're almost certainly tearing shreds off the new Exorcist sequel that's coming out um, uh, oh, this yes. month. I think I was looking forward to that because William Friedkin doesn't have a a very complimentary. He didn't have a very complimentary attitude to any of the Exorcist uh, sequels, especially Exorcist to the Heretic. Um, and so, yeah, it's a shame that it's a shame that Friedkin that Friedkin didn't uh, you know didn't last uh, long enough. And you know, obviously, this being the 50th anniversary of the original film from 1973, um, it's uh, it would have been nice for him to have um, you know still be here. But um, yeah, but uh, yeah, so it was really just um, um, uh, pouring over you know pre-existing sources, um, uh, things like that, and sort of like gathering together. Um, ideas sort of imposing some sort of shape. I mean, I think um, it, it's a very, I think it's a, it, the, the structure of the of the book is kind of unique, the way that it's um, sort of in, in several parts. There's the, the first half, which is the story of the making of the film, um, which is mostly, I like to think is, is you know, factually quite tight. It's very, um, you know, really just recounting what happened. And then the second half of the book is more analytical. Uh, and that's where I, hopefully um, it's much more obvious where my, um, opinions, you know, for what that's worth, uh, and you know, is um, it's much more, I guess, uh, opinion based and and you know, 
analytical based rather than rather than factual so it's um yeah but that structure did exist um in the the manuscript that i showed the publishers so i think they must have been you know in, intrigued enough by by that i think it was i think uh, that structure i think works a lot better um than had i just um you know just made it just a straightforward um making of i think i, I like to think that the way i did it is a little bit more a little bit more interesting and then um there was all sorts of like sort of strange things happening happening when I was writing the book. Um, I was watching. Um, uh, I guess it's just a sign of the the influence that you know that the Exorcist had on on pop culture at the time. I was there was a period of time some years ago, six or seven years ago, when I binged watched the first five seasons of Saturday Night Live, and they were always making. Um, there were all these like Exorcist references and riffs and things that some of it was quite kind of amusing. Whether it was you know the Exorcist to um, the sketch with Richard Pryor as the Exorcist or the um, uh, the the mock interview with Carrie Fisher playing Linda Blair as a bit of an airhead, and like I sort of ended up quoting like there's sort of snippets of Saturday Night Live uh, routines that sort of pepper the book, um, which I think is kind of I mean it's it's sort of peripheral to uh, you know the story of Exorcist too, but I think it was just I just liked putting in these kind of you know humorous little asides. Um, well, it know, grounds sort of, it in the real yeah. world. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, even the the bit where I think I quoted a, um, I think it was Bill Murray on a Weekend Update segment where he's basically saying he can't tell the difference between Ellen Burstyn and Louise Fletcher, <laughs> um, which I thought was kind of interesting because that has nothing to do with the fact that Ellen Burstyn was in The Exorcist and Louise Fletcher was in Exorcist Two. I think it was just a, it was just an observation that that uh, that he made, but I thought it was kind of you know that's kind of worth quoting, uh, kind of worth quoting in there. Um, yeah, and I, I think the uh, all of the rather uh, um, caustic um, derogatory uh, opinions that William Friedkin uh, had toward had toward Exorcist Two and John Borman had towards The Exorcist, I think I felt that those the constant sniping at each other over their respective movies, I, th I thought that was kind of uh, that was kind of interesting as well to sort of put that put that in. I believe the book begins with uh, you know quotes from from Friedkin and Borman uh, taking shots at each other's. <laughs> At each other's films. Oh, it um, does. Yes, I've yeah. just turned to, um, I guess, page V11. V11. Yes. yes, there are two quotes. I hated The Exorcist, <laughs> um, and then yeah, no, but I guess to my from my perspective, it it grounds your your critique or your analysis in the real world. It's not like it's it's like you're referencing uh, like holistically all yeah. the different perspectives because you are I like the idea that you're approaching this as a kind of mystery to be solved, yeah. that type of thing. The mm. spirit of it. Yeah, and and the sort of the holistic approach. I mean that's kind of why um, the chapter that deals with the actual release of The Exorcist, I sort of begin with a sort of a, a preamble about um, all the uh, sort of just a summary of world events that happened in, in the year 1977, uh, just to sort of give readers who, you know, uh, maybe maybe younger that sort of just sort of give you a snapshot of, you know, what was going on in the world, like, like social things, you know, technological things. Um, you know, current events like you know think, things like that. Uh, the only thing I didn't mention on a personal level was uh, 1977. Uh, April 1977 was the year my parents got married, but uh, yeah, that uh, there was no <laughs> that wasn't uh, I didn't I didn't mention that. So in a in a you know 1977 was kind of an important year for for me for for my existence. But uh, yeah. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. 
So I have a question. Why did mm-hmm. you write this book? Okay, two reasons. Um, one, um, I've, I'm massively into film. I'm massively into books about film. I've read so many books about film and the very thought of a book uh, with my name on it uh, that other people that are into film would you know, acquire and have on their shelves and read and think, you know, this is actually a pretty good book. Um, I, I did that. You know, that's that was a motivating factor. You know, I like the idea of you know something I've written um, being officially published and bound. Uh, everything. I was a little bit wary because I mean, there are a lot of people that really like Exodus to the Heretic, and my fear was kind of like, oh, you know, finally, you know, validation. There's a book on Exodus to the Heretic. You know, finally, you know, if someone's going to go on, is going to describe you know this this great movie and then i was sort of thought well they might be disappointed when they read that it's kind of it's not especially complimentary uh, about the film but i'm hoping that the title horrible and fascinating like you put horrible in the title hopefully they knew kind of where i was i was coming from um but yeah so that was one of the reasons one of the reasons and and the other reason was just to answer the the question you know what happened with this movie this movie that everyone was so into fans of you know the exorcist was such a huge film several years later the sequel was coming everyone wanted to see it and then they were they were so repulsed that they literally rioted and threw things at the screen and booed and they were ripping ticket booths out of the ground and you know the the it was critically slaughtered so like what actually happened and i just i mean i think uh, bob mccabe wrote a book uh, about the exorcist and he was basically saying of exorcist 2 like who knows where where it all went wrong you know and i was like well i i think i can do a little better than that i think the mystery is it's john borman and it's like it was a foreseeable problem, I think, because when Warner Brothers acquired the rights to film The Exorcist, the original Exorcist, they um, engaged John Borman to direct it. And he read the book and he told John Kelly, um, the Warner's head of production, you know, not only will I not make this movie, no one should make this movie. He hated The Exorcist. They obviously went with William Friedkin. The film was a huge success. And then when they went to make Exorcist 2, Friedkin didn't want anything to do with it. Then they went, OK, who, who can we get? Let's get John Borman. Like really smart move. The guy that hated the exorcist that wouldn't touch the exorcist. This is the guy you want to direct the sequel to the exorcist. Like, so what does that mean? If it was, if it was, what can that teach us? You know, that kind of phenomenon, (laughs) I guess it's within the history of filmmaking. It is really fascinating because it did. It it is like, I guess it's that kind of for people that haven't studied film. They wouldn't maybe necessarily know, but can you tell us a little bit about the kind of how this is placed maybe the 10 years previous mm-hmm. in terms of Hollywood productions and then the 10 years after? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I think in the 1970s, um, for better or worse, there was a, a much lionized period of film production when the director was more highly valued, I suppose. And there were like all this breed of like maverick filmmakers that were a little con- unconventional, a little bit outside of the um, the Hollywood industry, sort of with um, the way things were done before, uh, making movies that major studios were giving them um, the opportunity to make. And there were a lot of great movies. I mean, the set- 1970s is probably the best um, period uh, in Hollywood film history, the best single best decade. Uh, and I think it was like, you got to take the bad with the good. Like you can sort of, you can entrust, um, you know, an untried director to make a, you know, a, a big budget movie um and then you have like you know you have the, the godfather or you have jaws or you have you know we'll, we'll give this sort of you know young film guy some money to sort of make this crazy sounding movie about you know outer space and robots and droids and you know stuff like and then you have star wars and then it can work you know 
and then it, you have access to the heretic. Um, so I think Warner's they just they had faith in John Borman, maybe misplaced misplaced faith, but they, I think they just thought, you know, he's made good films. You know, this is a property that you know can't fail. Um, but I think the fact that you know the guy that um, hated the Exorcist, you know, they they like. We'll, we'll let Exodus 2 be made by a guy that hated Exodus 1. And then not only that, but the fact that they just basically gave him free reign and uh, didn't really um, keep an eye on what was what was happening. There were all sorts of fantastic production um, problems and, and things that were going on, which I, I detail uh, in, in the book. It's like, you know, I, I don't know. There doesn't seem to be much evidence that Warner's ever really had any notion of like, you know, uh, keeping a closer eye on what was what was going on and i think what you were saying before the difference is um i think you had in this sort of the the late 1970s you had all these movies that were sort of um these filmmakers were making that were sort of going off the rails um like peter bogdanovich's um uh they all laughed um martin scorsese's new york new york uh, michael cimino's heaven's gate um francis Ford coppola's one from the heart it was kind of excess two was kind of part of that cycle of films where the these directors were sort of given you know, big budgets to make movies that were just going completely off the rails. And I think in the 1980s, um, it was the studios began sort of micromanaging a lot more um, and they were maybe less risk averse, um, I think. Um, and, and you know, you had, um, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was just kind of, it was a different, it was a different way of doing films uh, in the, in, in the 1980s. But I think, um, yeah, it was, so, I mean, really, it was just what the, the, the answer to the mystery, as it were, was really just, um, yeah, John, John Borman was just not the right filmmaker for this material. But then, I mean, a, a, again, if it wasn't for John Borman, we wouldn't have had a film that would be as, as fascinating as this, like I was saying before, they could have just got some um, some bland, um, you know, studio minion to make a, an impersonal movie that, you know, might have been middling at best, but I think the way that um, the way that they did this, uh, it, it resulted in a movie that um, you know it didn't succeed at what it was trying to do. But it's you know it's endured in, in in a very in a very strange way. So I'm glad that you mentioned that what it was trying to do. What does that mean? What was this film? Was it a conventional <laughs> horror film? I mean, I, I suspect you know the answer. I know the answer, but our audience doesn't because no, a lot of people. Well, that, what yeah. Were, yeah. What 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 were the aims of the film? Well, the aim, the stated aim of John Borman himself was to repair the damage that the first film had done. Like he hated The Exorcist. He thought it was a destructive film. He kept he his, he he keeps insisting that it's a movie about torturing a child. And like he saw with Exorcist to the Heretic, his stated ambition was to make a film about goodness. You know that would uplift audiences. And it's like I, I don't know, man. It's like you know people saw The Exorcist. It was a it was a visceral, horrific film that had it had you know obviously theology and it had um you know existential questions and things and all sorts of things going on under the surface but it was you know primarily it was it was a bit of a shock fest and people were sort of so geared up for the for the sequel because you know and they thought you know it was going to be you know this is a sequel to the exorcist like you know we're going to be this is going to be terrifying and then there's this crazy um you know globetrotting movies about metaphorical locusts and tap dancing and um, and like bizarre science and and you know this sort of What's, weird metaphysics. Yeah, what about what is some of that weird <laughs> metaphysics? You know, just to, in a nutshell. Um, oh, all this this stuff to do with with Reagan, the girl from the first movie, being a, a mystical healer um, that's going to that's part of you know the next stage of human evolution that's going to help usher humanity into evolving into some sort of spiritual uh, realm. It's all to do with um, you know very very strange sort of. Um, New Age mysticism and things, which is, I mean, the original Exorcist is, is much more, um, 
you know, it's it's much more grounded, obviously, in in theology, um, you know, Catholic dogma and and such like. Whereas uh, Exodus Two is is much more freewheeling. It sort of taps into that that um, the nineteen seventies fascination with like you know, you know, um, I guess like alternative philosophies, alternative philosophies and things, um, which sort of seeped into the movie. Um, and yeah, it was a uh, very different uh, tonally, um, much more bizarre and, and fanciful. Actually. Um, I think one of the, I mean, aside from solving the mystery of, of what the film was, um, what caused the film to go the, the way it did, I think honestly the most eye-opening thing that came up in my research, and this kind of ties into a lot, I feel, the, the reckoning that we're coming with, was um, the reviews that greeted the film, um, the the sheer, the, the horrible, leering sexism that was leveled at Linda Blair, who was 17 when she made this movie, and so many reviews, like contempt, like then contemporary reviews from 1977, 1978, greeting the movie, just sort of, uh, you know, mostly male reviewers, um, like sort of discussing Linda Blair in very sexualized uh, terms and like the, the horrific misogyny. And it's like, and there was nothing bizarre about this at the time. These were all reviews printed by, you know, in newspapers and, you know, film articles written by you know, film journalists. And it was like, it's really, it was really eye-opening. And I sort of think that, um, yeah, that was, that was probably the thing that, the thing that shocked me, shocked me the most was just how commonplace and how matter of fact it was for, for, for these people to just be, you know, describing a, a, a minor in, in, you know, in such, such a chauvinistic, um, you know, borderline creepy, well, not, not even borderline, just blatantly creepy, creepy ways. It was, um, yeah, yeah, I guess it, it I mean, reflects the culture, um, as mm. you as you kind of hinted at, at the time. Like that was just a um, the done thing, maybe mm. that kind of yeah. u- using that approach. And yeah. I mean, wouldn't cut it in our contemporary culture. No, it wouldn't. Um, yeah, no, these no. That, I mean, that would. I mean, jobs would, would be lost. I mean, those reviews wouldn't wouldn't be printed uh, printed today. Uh, that being said, I mean, I do feel that 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 um, that Linda Blair is presented. In, in a somewhat sexualized manner in in the film um but you know for you know whether that's whether uh, appropriate or not in fact i think the, there was um i think linda blair herself actually um she chafed against um some scenes that she was asked to do that, that she described she didn't say exactly what it was but she sort of alluded to it being much more sexual that she and she didn't she didn't want to do it. and i think i think linda blair actually one thing that surprised me is that like she, I think she comes. She comes across, I think, as sort of the tragic, the real tragic uh, character in this in this story, as it were. Um, I think because um, it kind of wrecked her career. She was she never headlined a major studio film after this, and she was kind of put in a position where, you know, she had to carry this film, and she wasn't given adequate direction by by Borman. Um, so she delivers, I think, a pretty terrible performance. But I don't think it's I, I don't think it's her fault. I think she was neglected on set by a director who had other things on his mind, you know, the technical aspects of the film or Borman not really being an actor's director. Um, and I think it kind of, you know, it sort of, she was kind of thrown to the wolves. Uh, the most, it, it kind of leads to some a sort of embarrassing anecdote, which is after the book was written, um, Linda Blair's PA got in touch with me on social media and congratulated me on writing the book and everything and said she would show it to, you know, to Linda. And I was like, 
uh, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I kind of, I kind of, I'm kind of critical of her of her performance in this film. I'm not sure if I really, if, <laughs> if she should really read this, but never heard back. So I don't know whether she's read it or not. But um, you know, if she has, you know, it's nothing, nothing, nothing personal. Uh, I'm a big Linda Blair fan. I've got, I've actually got a, a a Linda Blair shelf on my my VHS collection, which which is populated by, you know, I'll be honest, mostly bad movies, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah, I feel like because we are coming to the end of our, our little chat, I just kind of um, mm-hmm. kept thinking. I'm looking through the book frantically, trying to find the very last line of the film where um, uh, is it Louise Fletcher must be. She yes. says something yep. about. She acknowledges the mystery of it, or something <laughs> like that. I can't think of the exact line, but it's. I it's, think it was. Um, I I understand, but but the, but the world won't. It was something like it was something like that, and yeah, that was just that was just the perfect, uh, the perfect line to 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 end, um, to to end the the whole thing on. It's like it is a movie. It it baffled audiences at the time, and uh, I think it still, you know, it it still does. Like it's sort of um, you know, it, it it's kind. Of, I mean, when they made the next sequel, Exodus Three, it, it it completely ignored Exodus Two. Um. It didn't have anything to do with Exorcist Two, so it's kind of it became like you know the redheaded stepchild of the of the whole Exorcist the whole Exorcist saga. Well, one thing I will say is that if anyone out there who is you know you just want to write, you, you, if you're passionate uh, about a, you know something, um, and you sort of maybe feel that you know maybe you can do something with it, my advice is to go ahead and do it because I that's exactly what I was. I was just just um, you know a guy with you know, made with a lot of films and a lot of time on his hands, um, you know, and I, I made a go of it. And, you know, against my initial expectations, I got this book, this book out and I've, I've met some, you know, I've met some good people uh, through the book um, being out there. And I'm just, I'm just hugely grateful to, to my publishers. Um, and it's really just um, a sign that, you know, being a, I guess being a massive geek can, you know, it can, you, you, it can, you know, it, you, you can, Pursue it. You can you can even monetize it. You know, uh, <laughs> that's a very cynical way of uh, way of putting it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's something like something like Exodus to the Heretic, which is you know, I mean, there's all manner of movies that are bad for various reasons that just sort of fade and and you know. But I think by virtue of the fact that it's it's part and parcel of a of a enduring franchise. Um, but more importantly, I think the fact that the story behind the film is so strange and the result is so strange. It's a movie that for all its myriad flaws, it, it, I don't think it's a film that can be, it, it can be dismissed. Um, it's a film that I, I feel um, is fascinating on its own merits, but also fascinating um, as to the, the crazy stuff that was, that was going on behind the scenes. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there's lots of books out there um uh, Stephen Bach's um, final cut about the making of Heaven's Gate or Julie Salmon's um, The Devil's Candy uh, about the making of Bonds of the Vanities, like movies about uh, books about disastrous film productions, um, I think are just really, you know, are just really good, um, even if the films aren't. And I, I, I'm just, I'm just hugely grateful if my, if my book on Exodus to the Heretic is to be considered in the context of, of, you know, of books like that, I would be, you know, I, I find it very, I'll be very humbled and very, very flattered if that was, if that was to be, to be the case. In this episode, I chatted with Declan Neil Fernandez. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including a link to Declan's book, Horrible and Fascinating, John Borman's Exorcist II, The Heretic. 
Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville. No locusts were harmed in the production of this podcast episode. 